Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 76. You have one year within which you can file a patent application. You miss that window from the first day you do it to that year, then you've now missed the window to file a patent application. You've don- donated it to the public, and, and no, but you can't get a patent on it. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. How's it going, everybody out there? This is Jay Scott. I am your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast and. The woman sitting right across from me in a completely separate room, so not really right across from me, is my lovely co-host, Carol Scott. How's it going today, Carol Scott? Doing so well, thank you. And guess what, listeners? We have a fun fact little brain teaser quiz for you today. Okay, get this. So the company who invented this particular product that we all know, and some of us love, some of us don't love it, but that's irrelevant, they recently trademarked, ready for this, the scent of this product. So I want you to listen to this and try and guess what it is. You ready? A sweet, slightly musky, vanilla-like fragrance with slight overtones of cherry and the natural smell of a salted wheat-based dough. Hmm, what could it be? Well, listen to our episode and you're going to find out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a little brain teaser that we do talk about in the episode because our episode today is with a gentleman named Devin Miller, and he is the founder of Miller IP Law, where IP stands for intellectual property. And he is an engineer, he's an MBA, and he is an attorney that specializes in intellectual property. And when we talk about intellectual property, we're talking about patents and trademarks and copyrights and other things that you use to protect the things that you do in your business. And in this episode, we're going to talk about patents and trademarks and copyrights. We're going to talk about the differences between them, when you should be using them, 
what things they can protect and not protect. We're going to talk about how much these things cost, whether you can be doing them yourself, and if you're going to do them yourself, what you can do to make sure that you don't screw it up. We're going to be talking about the process and the pitfalls. Basically, everything there is to know about patents, trademarks, and copyrights, or at least everything there is to get started knowing about patents, trademarks, and copyrights. And yes, we even talk about in the trademark section what that scent is that a company just trademarked this week that Carol just read. So stay tuned and, and listen and see if you can guess what that trademark might be for. Now, if you want to find out about Devin Miller, Miller IP Law, or anything we talk about in this episode, feel free to check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow76. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow76. Okay, now without any further ado, let's welcome Devin Miller to the show. Devin, it is so good to have you here today. And we are so looking forward to learning more about Miller IP law and all about patents, trademarks, copyrights, and all the different ways we need to protect the intellectual property of our company. So welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here and uh, share a little, a little bit about a lot. Awesome. Awesome. This is a topic that I get a lot of questions about. And so it's one of those things that we could tackle a little bit in, in, in other episodes, but generally we don't have the experts here to, to help us through it. So I'm thrilled to be able to discuss like just this whole topic of intellectual property in one episode. So you run a company called Miller IP Law where you specialize. You're an attorney that specializes in, in intellectual property law. Let's start with the really, really basics. What is intellectual property and why should we as business owners even care about it? Absolutely. So yeah, intellectual property is kind of a umbrella term. So kind of is if you're referring to a few different things, everybody just refers to it generally as intellectual property, but breaking it down just a little bit, typically intellectual property includes patents, trademarks, and copyrights. So then breaking down just a little bit what those each are. So patents, if you're to think of anything that's an invention, it does something, it has a functionality, it's an invention, you, you created it. That's what a patent covers. Trademarks cover anything with your brand. So if you're to think of a name, a logo, product name, a catchphrase, something along that nature, anything when you're building a brand really is covered under trademarks. And then copyrights are more for creatives. And so, you know, you think of books or photos or movies or podcasts or blogs, something that's more on the creative nature, it falls under copyright. So intellectual property, you just kind of refer to it. It's a kind of a blanket term that refers to all of those. And then you dive into the more of the specifics. Excellent. Excellent. So how did you become such an expert in intellectual property? What is your background and how did this become your passion in your area of expertise? Yeah, absolutely. And that shortest, short question, probably a longer answer. I'll try and keep it reasonable. Starting out, so I undergraduate, I did at Brigham Young University here in Utah. And I did a, a double or two degrees. I did a electrical engineering degree and a Mandarin Chinese degree. And I kind of got to the end of those degrees, especially engineering, said, well, I love engineering, but I don't want to be an engineer in the sense that I didn't want to stay on projects for months or years and be a very small cog and a big wheel and not be able to really do any of the fun and exciting stuff for a long time. So I said, what else can I do? And I kind of had a crossroads. I, I love business and startups and doing that kind of an entrepreneur nature. And I also really loved engineering and kind of that. And I, I thought the law was also sounded interesting. So kind of put those all in a blender and mix them together and said, what do I want to do? So I, I went off to graduate school and I did a, a dual degree. I got a law degree 
and an MBA degree. So master's of business administration and law degree. During that time, and I know it's a slight tangent, but it will make sense as we talk. While I was in MBA school, I also entered a business competition with a few other people. It's one of those where you all get together and nobody knows each other. And you say, okay, we're going to form a team. And, you know, you get interdisciplinary. So one was a designer, one was a trying to think, an engineer and a materials engineer. Got them all together and said, let's come up with an idea. First year, we entered an idea for not doing or making gym bags less stinky. Then we, we moved off of that. So we took second place, came back the next year, and we're trying to come up with an idea. And I said, hey, I'd love to – we couldn't come up with a great idea. We tossed around a bunch. So was, I was running marathons at the time, and I still enjoy running. And as we were doing that, I said, wouldn't it be cool if you could monitor hydration? They, you know, Almost like a wearable or a Fitbit. This was in the days before iWatch hadn't come out or Apple Watch, Fitbit hadn't come out. And I said, it'd be awesome if you could do that. So came up with a prototype, entered in the competition, and then did took second place again. Longer story, slightly bitter about that, but nonetheless, did that. And I so that was at the time I graduated, finished up the business competition, said, well, I'm, I'm finishing up law school. I also have this business. And I said, hey, I think it's a good business. I bought out those people in the business competition. They're my partners, so I could own it outright. So then I graduated and I said, love startups, love small businesses, also want to be a patent attorney and a trademark attorney. So I went off and worked for some large law firms, did patent and trademark attorney as a full-time job, did that. And then I continued the business on the side of that. And I'd done a few other startups and small businesses along the way and continued that. So I just really kind of had a passion for startups and small businesses. And I love the law side of how do you then... so you put in all this time and effort, you're putting blood, sweat and tears to come up with an idea, come up with a brand. How do you protect it? How do you grow it? And that's kind of where the genesis came for, you know, wanted to do my own businesses, protect them, grow them, also wanted to help others. So at at some point after I worked for large law firms for a while, I said, I want to do my own thing with the law firm. So I started Miller IP Law as well as continuing my startup. So I know it was a short question. That was a much longer answer, but that gives you a little bit of a background. I love that. And and I'll be honest, that was part of the reason I wanted you on the show because when you talk about IP and, and IP law, obviously you need somebody that has a law degree because there's, there's a lot of legal aspects of it. But just as much somebody that understands the business side of it and how we apply IP to our business. And when we talk about patents, we're going to talk, I have a feeling we're going to talk about things that are engineering related and a lot of times relate to how we actually create processes. And so having that engineering degree as well, you kind of have like you're firing in all cylinders. You got the law, the business and the engineering. You can basically like think through all the circumstances. So that was part of the reason why I was really excited to have you on the show. So Let's start with patents because I know a lot of the entrepreneurs that that I work with and I talk to, they have a general concept of what a patent is. They may think they need it for their business, but there's so many questions. There's so much bad information out there about patents. So let's start with that. What is a patent? When and why might we want one? Who? What type of business owner is a patent good for? Yeah, so there's a lot of questions there. I'll try to unpack them. So what is a patent? So we talked about it's really just an invention. So if you if if you come up with an invention, it can be a product, you can be a, a widget. We do it everything from I've done it for everything from boat anchors, I've done it for wearables, I've done it for medical devices, I've done it for all sorts of different products. And it's really anything when you're creating something, coming up with an invention that does something. That's kind of the genesis for a patent. Now diving into when you're going to need it, 
I always, and this would be kind of across the board for patents, trademarks, and copyrights, but you're going to look and say, where's the value of your business? Meaning, are you putting a lot of time and effort to come up with the next greatest iPhone, right? Or the next greatest whatever. And if so, you want to protect that, right? You're going to dump a lot of time and effort and money and everything else in development. And you're saying, if I'm going to do all that, how do I protect that? Because a lot of times, once you come up with something, it's always easy to look back and say, hey, that's an easy thing. I can replicate that. But it's that initial person that came up with it, came up with the idea, implemented it, built it, that put all the time, sweat, and effort into it. It's easy to knock off once you can see somebody else has done it. So if that's kind of the focus of your business, you're saying we're creating a new product, then it could be anything from software, electrical, mechanical, or anything else, then you can do it as, I need a patent. And so that's kind of the genesis of where you start. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when when I think about from a business standpoint, I see two really good reasons to have a patent. There are probably a million, but the first two that kind of stick out in my mind, one, as you said, it protects your time, your money, your effort, your labor. You you throw a whole bunch of, of everything into trying to create something. You don't want somebody else to just steal it and be able to take advantage of it. So that's number one. And then the second piece that I think we've talked about a little bit on the show in the past is that when you have the patent, it gives you an extra ability to monetize your business. It gives you potentially an income stream. If you license it, you can sell the technology or pieces of the technology. The patent itself, I assume you could sell or at least sell the rights to it. So not only does the patent give you the ability to protect what you're creating, but it also gives you the ability to monetize what you're creating in a way that it can't easily be taken from you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's spot on. Those are probably the two biggest reasons. One is, hey, we want to protect all the investment, time, money, and effort we're putting into this. So if somebody else doesn't just come along and rip us off. And that's a lot of times where people focus. But I think to your second point, it is a you know intellectual property. The word property is something that you can own. And this is so much time or so is a lot of times it's so hard to I got a whole bunch of ideas in my head and I we're working it out and it took a lot of time to figure it out. But how do you monetize that? How do you actually capture value there? And you know, most of the time it's you can't sell what's in your head, but at least with the patent you can protect it. And then it is an asset. And going back just to the store I mentioned, the one company I did with the hydration monitor, we built up to a product. I did a bunch of patents on it portfolio and we did end up licensing that out to another business, which is then leveraging a lot of what we did. So it absolutely became a great asset to the company was one of the best revenue in air sources for it. And it could be a, a major part that if you want to go everything from go to an angel investor or venture capital, they're going to want to know how do you protect what's proprietary? What am I investing in and how do I hedge my bets if I if the company goes under two, if I want to sell my business or acquire it or license it? All of the above, exactly. Awesome. And can I, Devin, ask an additional clarification question for our listeners to dig even a little bit deeper? For something to be patentable, does it need to be a physical product? So whether it's a widget or a piece of software or a hydration monitor or whatever, or... Um, on the converse of that, could it be your processes around a business? So, it, so I guess it's kind of a twofold question. What is and is not patentable? And do those things need to be full on physical products? Yeah, like uh, yeah. I'll use an example like FedEx as some crazy, complicated ways of ensuring that they can deliver overnight. I assume that was all pretty new and, and uncharted. Can they use patents to, to protect those processes around their business? Yes and no, to a degree. And I'll give you a bit of uh, fuller answer. So back in the day, take a time machine back five years, business methods were generally, that's almost, you know, one area where you can patent a business method. You 
problem was, and you know method of doing business and you almost say it was kind of the amazon the one click type of an idea and for a while there those were pretty patentable you had a lot of patents that i think in in reality shouldn't have been let through shouldn't have been patented and so you almost had the court system that kind of reeled it back and said well you can't just patent a way of doing business because it's too esoteric it's too un or, you know a lot of people have been doing business for a long period of time doing it that way and you're coming in and stopping people it's really hard to figure out search that figure it out so they really reeled back on the just a pure business method on to your point though on like a fedex what a lot of times what they do is there's a lot of a lot of that is technology enabled right so think of fedex or any of them they'll have probably tracking on their packages they'll have GPS. They'll look at the routes that the individuals take. They'll do analytics on all that to say, you know, I can't remember if it's FedEx or UPS for a long time. They only let their drivers take right turns. They wouldn't let them take left turns because you, if you took a left turn, they would look at it and say, one, you have to go through an intersection and it increases our odds of you getting in a wreck. And two, you're always having to get stuck in a light versus if you take a right turn, you don't have to typically wait at a light. So a lot of that they figured out with analytics in the back end. So absolutely, those type of things, as you're enabling with technology, analytics, software, those type of things, you can patent. So generally, the ones that are most difficult, the business method, you're going to be having a difficult time patenting. You come up with the other weird ones that the patent office said, you can't patent a perpetual motion machine. They had a whole bunch of people that keep trying to apply. They just said, it's not possible. If you really could come up with an idea, we'll consider it, but quit filing patents on there. Same thing with the cure for cancer. As of now, you can't patent a cure for cancer until they actually cure cancer. But other than that, really the, the two main gating features as to patentability as to whether or not something is patentable are, I guess, three. One is what's called novelty. Novelty is basically, has anybody else previously invented it? If somebody else has previously invented it, you can't patent because you didn't come up with the idea and it's already out there. The second one is more on obviousness. And so obviousness is okay. Not one person created this, but if you were to take two or more things out there, you were to you know, put them together in an obvious way, you're really not adding anything new. You're just combining a couple of things out there in an obvious way such that it's not patentable. And then the third one is kind of where it gets to a business method. If it's something you can just do in your head or people have been doing in, on pen and paper and all you're doing is sticking it on a computer, I want to put that on a computer. I want to patent it. Well, you can't just take two plus two equals four, stick it on a computer, patent it because people have been doing it in their head or pen and paper for a long time. So those are kind of the barring things. If you're novel, if you're not obvious, and if you're doing something more than just taking something that people do in their head, those are the things that you can patent. Beyond that, it's a really open field and a lot of a lot of good areas to go after. Excellent. Let, let me ask you a question because I know this is something that, that's confusing to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I know even really smart people that understand this, there's, there's often d disagreements on this. Um, but at what point do you go from idea to something that's patentable. I can come up with a great idea. People often say, I've got this amazing idea, I need to patent it. And my first response is, well, how does it actually work? Because you, you, am I correct to say, you can't just patent an idea, you're patenting the implementation? Absolutely. No, I get those people all the time. They're like, oh, I got a great idea. It, the, the, usually it's one step further. So I got a great idea. I just want to patent it. I don't actually know, you know, want to do anything with it. I just, everybody, I just want to license to everybody. And I still, well, that's great. Most of the time people aren't just going to pay you for an idea. And, mo and even if you get a patent, they're not just going to come pound down your door and say, oh, we want to take a license from you. You have to build more or do more to it. With your more specific to your question, yeah, you can't patent an idea. Usually what it has to be is what we would call in the legal industry, conceptual reduction of practice. 
Now, what does that mean? That means, can you explain your idea in a level to someone that someone else in the industry could understand it and replicate it? So if you can say, you know, let's take, I'll take an easy one, golf clubs. And if you say, I'm going to make a new golf club, and I think it's, it's going to increase your swing 10x, and it's going to make you drive it farther. If that's your whole idea, you can't get a patent on it. You can't just say, I'd like to patent an app or a golf club that makes you have a better swing. On the other hand, if you say, now, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it, and I'm making it up. And I'm going to make it out of titanium alloy with a mixture of aluminum. And then I'm going to make the golf size, you know, the head of the golf club this size. And I'm going to make it this length. And that. then you got to say, now we can have the details around your idea that you could go to somebody else in the golf club making industry and say, here's the specifications, here's what I want to do, and here's how I do it. And say, oh, yeah, I can make that. We could certainly do that. Get to that level. You've reached it to where you can now go after a patent. Cool. So I've had this amazing idea about this new golf club, and I figured out that if I put this very specific, very long decimal number grade, something, something, carbon fiber, titanium, whatever, whatever, that it's all <laughs> going to work. And, and all of those amazing technical details that, of course, I would know. What is next in the process? I mean, do I do a patent search on my own? How long does this process take? Can you please just walk me through the process of how I make my new, incredible, amazing, off the charts golf club patentable? All right. Uh, I have, absolutely. And the, the thing is, I'll give it to you within our process in the sense it does vary a bit firm from firm. So I'll give you some general guidelines. And then if you were to go to different firms, you'd probably get a little bit of a difference in costs and time frame. So first one is, is patent search. And that's one that comes up a lot. Should I do a patent search? And I kind of, it, it, it's, it's got to give the standard lawyer answer. And if you ever know, if you're talking to a good lawyer, their answer is always, it depends. So the general answer is, should you get a patent search? Well, it depends. But I'll give you a couple of ways of how you would decide whether or not you do it. So one client or some of the clients that come in, they have what they think is a great idea, but they really don't know what else is out there. They don't know what others have done. They don't know if it's, you know, it's already been invented and they haven't done a lot of research or anything of that nature. Then they'll say, yeah, a patent search probably makes sense. Let's get an idea of what the landscape's out there whether or not it makes sense to invest in a full patent application, whether or not you're going to hit road bumps or anything else, or whether or not you have a pretty clear field to go forward. So that's kind of, that makes sense to do a patent search. On the flip side, you'll also have, we, and we have other clients that are, they're really cutting edge. They're the forefront of their industry. They know what all their competitors are doing. They, they keep very good tabs. And so they are probably more expert than we are on a lot of the industry and are saying, in that case, if you already know, you know, what everybody's doing, what's out there, a patent search may not be as much, it may not be as applicable because you already, you already know what's going out there and whether or not what you're doing is unique and novel and not, not, not obvious and those type of things. So it kind of depends on where you're at in the States. A lot of startups and small businesses, I'd recommend for doing a patent search, especially if you're new to it, you think, hey, I think I have a great idea, but I don't know. So then your question was, I think, what was the process and what are the costs beyond that? So Take ours. If we were to do a patent search, our, we do everything on flat fees. And I like flat fees. makes it easier for startups and small businesses to budget, understand what things are cost. And it doesn't feel like the meter is always running every time you talk with your attorney. With that, our flat fees patent search, $750. We go out. It usually takes about a week and a half to or so turnaround time to do that. Average between the patent industry, every or, you know, patent industry, somewhere between a week to three weeks, you'd probably be looking at, depending on the firm. And depending on the firm, you're anywhere from 750 to 1500 depending on if you go to a large California firm or New York firm, or if you do a, re, or a normal size firm or one that's not the huge high rise type ones. 
process-wise, so let's say you go out and do a search and you say, okay, comes back and says, yeah, we think that there's things that are patentable or you have a way forward or, you know, not a guarantee, can't ever tell you that it's absolutely patentable, but it gives you a better idea of, hey, these are things that we don't see that you could focus on. Next steps of the process say, okay, I'd either want to do what's called a provisional or non-provisional patent application. And people oftentimes at, don't know what the difference necessarily is. So we'll walk you through those really quick. Provisional is a less formal version of a patent application. So it doesn't have formal drawings, doesn't have all the other sections of a full patent application, but it really just focuses on what the invention is. And what it allows you to do is you basically get one, you get patent pending. So the day you file the provisional patent application, your patent pending, but then it acts as a year placeholder. It basically gives a year to decide whether or not I want to go out and invest in a full patent application. I can go out, test it in the marketplace, do more development or anything else, take a year time frame, and then come back towards the end of that year and say, yeah, it looks like we'd love to go after and get a full patent application, go towards a patent, or hey, this idea didn't really work, or we couldn't get the investor dollars in or whatever. So provisional patent application. So if you take ours, flat fee for ours is 1700 um, and it takes about a three-week turnaround time. You go to the full patent application. That one is one where, you know, that's the one that everybody hears if you listen to Shark Tank or do you have a patent or anything else. That one is one where you're saying, this is a full patent application. It takes about three to four weeks to prepare, usually about four weeks. And we, uh, flat fee on ours is 5,500. And that, I, I worked with large law firms before I started my own. Cost of doing a, a non-provisional patent application, the full one, it ranges from low-end ones that I wouldn't recommend, but some offer 3,500 up to about 10,000. So there's a pretty big variability. Depends on how big the law firm, how good of a job they do, how much they make you do, and everything else. Once you find, so doing that, let's say you did that today. Come into our firm, we said, we'll get you set up. We get the, sit down with you, go through your invention, and you get, we prepare and file a patent application. After that, then you file with the patent office. And when you file with the patent office, they put it in a queue for examination. And when they examine it, first of all, it takes about 12 to 18 months to get to the top of the queue. So anticipating, you're not going to hear tomorrow after you file, hey, you got a patent, it's allowed. It takes about 12 to 18 months before they honestly start the process. It's the government. They take a long time to do things. Nothing we can do about that. Once they start to examine it, they look at novelty, obviousness, and whether or not you can do it in your head. The three standards. They to come back and say, yep, it's patentable. We allow the patent. Or no, it's rejected, and now we're now you go back and forth. You argue back and forth, or you work with the patent office to say, "Hey, we you're wrong. You're misinterpreting what others have done. This is why we're different." Or, "Hey, we started out really broad, and we think we we said we owned a whole bunch of the real estate in this area. Let's narrow that down a bit." And then you go back and forth, and you'll either come to an agreement and they'll allow it as a patent, or they'll say, "Nope, we're still not going to allow it," and eventually say it's not worth arguing, and you let it go bad. And so. That's a few, I know that was a short question. Again, short questions always get the longest answers, <laughs> but that kind of gives you a bit of the process and the cost and, and the time frame and whatnot. Awesome. I love that. Thank you. That was tremendously informative. I know that when it comes to any types of, of IP, uh, intellectual property, there's always kind of two routes to go. You can hire the professional and and you can pay a little bit more and 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 you'll get what you pay for. But there's some people out there that, probably are thinking, I'm in startup mode. I need 30 patents. I can't afford to go hire somebody. And we're talking about multiple different types of IP here. So the answer may be different for patents and trademarks and copyrights. But for patents specifically, can you talk about 
Is that something that business owner or an inventor can do themselves? What's the risks? What's the downside? On a scale of one to 10, like where do you put like how important it is to hire somebody that can do this versus doing it yourself? And what would the cost be if somebody wanted to go that route? Yeah. And and I'll fully recognize, I probably give a bit of a biased answer. You're asking a patent attorney, should you do it yourself or hire me? It'll probably be me. Well, I'll try and give you, I, I usually try and answer, what would I do if I was in your shoes? Because I, startups and small businesses always have more things to spend money on than they have money to spend. And so I get that there's always that pressure of trying to figure out where to put the money and what can I do myself. And so with that, I would say, I'd put it kind of like this, it's better to have something than nothing. So if you absolutely can't afford anything and you want to do it yourself, that's probably better than not having any protection at all. And so if you were to do it yourself, you can prepare, well, you can prepare both. The patent office does allow you to do what's called pro se or just do it against the actual applicant or inventor and file it yourself. Provisional patent application, you could probably prepare and file yourself for a couple hundred dollars. And if you're to do a non-provisional or the full patent application, that's probably, I'd have to look at the exact numbers, but probably seven or $800. You can do that. Now, the drawbacks to it are a few. One is if, you know, there sometimes if you admit something in your patent application saying, this is how I say the prior art, what others have done, and really it's something that you've done and you've invented, but you characterize it or you make it sound like it's something that's already been done, that can work against you. They can, can say, hey, you already said somebody else has done this. You can't patent it. They take your admission as you can't patent it. So you can act, you can shoot yourself in the foot a little bit that way. The other way that it, it oftentimes is a drawback of doing it yourself is that it gives you a bit of a false sense of security in the sense that you think you're covered, you think that you have your invention that, hey, now I go out, I can start selling it and start promoting it, everything else, and only to find out you didn't cover the areas in need, you didn't describe it well, you didn't provide the level of detail or anything of that nature. And so you got this kind of, hey, I've got a patent pending, I'm good to go and introduce it, only to find out that you don't, you're not very well covered, you don't have that coverage, and now you've gone out and have other people have seen your idea, they've thought, hey, it's a great idea, I'm going to do that myself. Last thing is, you know, the other thing is you think of whether or not you're if even before you file a patent application, whether it's yourself with an attorney. So one thing that people often miss is you have a year deadline from the time you ever introduce your idea to the, uh, the public. So let's say today I go and do a conference or I do a Kickstarter campaign or I go pitch it to a whole bunch of investors. Anytime I put it out in the public, you have one year within which you can file a patent application. You miss that window from the first day you do it to that year, then you, you're, you've now missed the window to file a patent application. You've don donated it to the public and, and no, but you can't get a patent on it. So that's kind of one other thing that people often don't think about is they get a year or two down the road and they say, oh, I should probably patent something now. Whether or not it's a patent attorney or not, they miss that year window, they come to an attorney or they try and do it themselves and then they get this rejection. They say, you can't do this. You're not able to file a patent. And then you're saying, well, I, gotta, I, I wanna do something and we're making a lot of money now off of this. And so that's the, are some of the drawbacks. Going back to the short answer, bet, something better than nothing, but an attorney is going to make sure you miss, you don't miss a lot of those gotchas. They're gonna make sure it's done right. Make sure you get the, the protection that you're wanting, make sure everything is covered for you and make sure walk through the whole process. So if you absolutely are bootstrapped, file something is better than nothing. If I were to give the one other piece of guidance, put as much detail as you can in there. Sometimes people are saying, well, if I put a whole bunch of detail and somebody finds out, they're gonna know how they do it. 
it's better to put the detail in there. It's better to have it there because then at least you're fully describing your invention and it doesn't create problems of not having enough detail there and, and getting your patent rejected that way. Plus, if you do a provisional patent application, it never becomes available to public. Nobody ever sees it until you go for that non-provisional. Those are a few thoughts and questions on kind of DIY, do it yourself, hire an attorney and when it would make sense. Thank you for all that clarification. I feel like I've learned more about patents in the past 10, 15 minutes than I've known in my many, many years of business. So thank you for all this detailed info. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Just one, one, one more question to wrap up on the patents discussion. I'm curious, do patents ever expire or uh, conversely, do they last forever? I'm sure people would love it if they lasted forever. So especially for pharmaceuticals and they, and they put a ton of money in R&D. So they always, you know, you think aspirin, aspirin was now has been out long enough that it's no longer patented. Aspirin was patented for a while. You think of all the, all the drugs out there, they are very aggressive on patents because they spend millions and billions of dollars. Short answer is patents, you have a year or 20 years from the date that you originally file your patent application within which is enforceable. So it's kind of a trade-off with the government. The government's saying, if you disclose all the details of your invention, it allows people to understand it. People can build on top of it. They can improve on it and they can move it forward. So because you're in your patent providing all that details, we'll give you kind of what would be a monopoly or be able to box people out. We're not going to give that to you for forever. We're going to give it to you for 20 years. Once you get the end of the 20 years, then it's open to the public. Anybody can use what's in your patent. You can, or anybody can build on top of it. Anybody can proceed forward. So you kind of have that trade-off. You get 20 years where you get an exclusivity to it. Once you hit the end of the 20 years, anybody can use it. Okay, so that explains why Coca-Cola doesn't necessarily patent their secret formula and KFC exactly. doesn't patent their 20 herbs and spices because it's worth it for them to keep it secret because they don't want to lose that or have that information out in the public domain 20 years later when it expires. That makes perfect sense. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's move, let's move on to trademarks. So that was great on, on patents, but trademarks are another important aspect of intellectual property that a lot of us as business owners really, really care about. I want to tell a story. Yesterday, I was just searching my news feed and I read an article that I thought was tremendously interesting about a patent that was just, what's the word, uh, approved um, mm -hmm. from the patent office. And I'm going to read what, the, what basically the patent said because I thought it's so interesting what this was. So what the patent said was, a sweet, slightly musky, vanilla-like fragrance with slight overtones of cherry and the natural smell of a salted wheat-based dough. 
I want to. I'm gonna want to see what that smells like because I can't even imagine that one. So that was the patent approval for the smell of Play-Doh. Huh. As of, I think it was just yes, just yesterday, the patent office approved a uh, the the trademark office approved a trademark for the smell of Play-Doh. So mm. that that leads me to a million questions. I thought trademarks were just for like logos or or whatever. Apparently, that's not the case. So, can you tell us, like, in general, what a trademark is, when we might want to use it for our business, what it can and can't cover, and yeah. Yeah, so trademarks in the very core, and, and then we'll get into a few of what you can and can't do, is anything that identifies your goods or services, goods or products. So if you're selling a product, any sort of product, that's what we call a goods. Services are kind of now if you're offering a service. So attorneys offer services, we do it. If you're a CPA or a uh, you know an attorney or a, a finance person or anything, we offer service. Anything that identifies your goods and services, that's... and that's what you can trademark. So within that, you know, that's a lot of times why what identifies your goods or services. So if you, let's take Nike as an example. Nike has a trademark on the word Nike. Everybody knows if it's athletic wear, apparel, or anything else, it's Nike. That's, you know, that Nike is selling the product. And so that's, they're doing it. Same thing with the Nike Swish, you know, those type of things. So easy on the words of, you know, name of a company, brand of a company, name of a product, you can do name of a company and name of a product. So Apple is the name of a company, name of a product is iPhone, right? They have trademarks on both. So anything that identifies who is selling this, who is going, who's the person that's providing this product, providing the service, that's trademarkable. Now to kind of get into more of the Play-Doh and others. So some of them, you have a few examples, Play-Doh, and I didn't, I don't know that, I didn't know that was a description. I knew that you could do smells, but let's say you have smells. And if it's a Everybody, when they smell that smell, they think, oh, that's the smell of Play-Doh. Then you could technically, it identifies your brand, right? It identifies your good. It smells like Play-Doh. Everybody that smells that, they don't think it's by if somebody else's smell, they know it's Play-Doh. Another one that they've done is sounds. If you were to think of the old, and now it's going to date people a little bit, but you know, when they did the beam, when your computer turns on and it makes a noise and, you know, you have different ones for Windows and Apple, those are trademark sounds. So they trademark the sounds because everybody knows that. Same thing when you did, you know, you've got mail, that type of thing. That was another one because everybody knows that was with AOL. And I know that people that uh, did you ever use AOL or did you, you got mail, you'll have to go look up what that is. A few other interesting ones are, you know, you can also trademark colors sometimes. So you take uh, the Cadillac and it's, um, I think it's Mary Kay, I'd have to double check. They're the pink, pink cars, I believe so. And they trademark a specific color of pink because everybody, people would drive around those cars. And if you got so high up on their selling chain that you've done, you're so high up in the company, they would give you a pink car and they trademark the color pink. One of the other ones, and then I'll give a break, is if you did um, football. So I can't remember which team it is now. I'd have to go look it up. They had a specific, they, would, they wouldn't do the normal green field, but they, I think it was red. It was a color of red. They'd always do their football field as red. They actually trademarked it because whenever you saw the red football field, it was that team. And so all of those are identifying your brand, identifying the source of goods or services to where when people smell it, they hear it, they see it, they see the word, anything else they say, is that company that's selling it or is this company that's providing the service? And that kind of gives you what trademarks are. Awesome. Yeah. And I know like the, when you say the colors, I actually remember reading a year or two ago, like UPS has trademarked their brown color and uh target has trademarked their red color and so that's that's really interesting so who is allowed 
to trademark what? Let's say we have a politician that goes out tomorrow and says some crazy thing on TV that ends Did up. You ha- I'm sorry, Jay. Did it have to be about politics? Did we okay. have to go there? No, no. So let's say we have some artist, some musician that goes Much out better. and says something crazy on TV tomorrow. And it ends up being a slogan that like, I want to put that on a T-shirt. Am I allowed to trademark something somebody else said? Are they allowed to trademark? Hmm. Is it does it become too late once it's out there and people are using it? Like, what am I allowed to put on a T-shirt t- today? Uh, I, I see you have a, a Miller IP law plaque in your background with with a, a mark on it, a, a presumably hat. trademark, oh, and, a, and, a and a hat and a shirt. He's got all the swag. It's so, awesome. So I I assume you probably have that trademark. So I can't create a Miller IP Law shirt, or maybe I can. I'll let you tell me. But let's say you didn't have a trademark on that. Let's say you were just using that and you never bothered trademarking it. Could I then put that on a T-shirt and sell it? So what are the rules about what I can trademark, what I can't trademark, who can use a mark, when does it stop being allowed to be trademarked, and all those things? Right. There's like 20 questions. I don't know. I know. I know. Why, but you gave me also the hardest examples, which, you know, make for fun conversations. So t-shirts are honestly, uh, in a, a lot of apparel, are hard, the hardest ones to get trademarks on in the sense that people oftentimes t- are on apparel, they'll put a really cool catchphrase, you know, or they'll put a low or they'll put a cool design and then they say, I want to trademark it. And most of the time, most apparel you can't trademark because it's not identifying the source of goods or services. In the sense, when I see a t-shirt with a funny saying on it, I don't think that this is sold by Carol. I think it's sold by, it's just a cool shirt. I don't know who sells it. I don't really care. So it doesn't identify a source of goods or services. The only exception to clothing is if it's more, if you see, oh, wrong, pointed the wrong side. If you did the... Uh, a logo or a tag name, you know, a polo shirt, you know, they have a little polo guy on there and it's not that it's, Hey, it's not a cool design. It's identifying, Hey, this is a polo shirt. So if it's that kind of a thing, you can do it. It's same thing with the hat. This is my logo. It does identify a source of goods or services. Therefore you could do it. But if I were to just put a cool design on a hat, you can't trademark it because it doesn't really identify anything other than it's a cool design. The other one that he gave me was also hard one is I, I really can't trademark my own company name, Miller IP Law. And let me give you the reason why. Last names, unless you've reached the level of infamy where everybody associates your last name with that individual. So Michael Jordan, everybody knows as the basketball player. He's famous enough. If you say Michael Jordan, you don't say, who is that? You know, th- those type of things. Or, you know, Kim Kardashian or someone, I don't know, pick your favorite celebrity, Tom Cruise. I, I don't know which one is or which one people like, so I'll just throw out a few. But if you have that level of information, you can start to get trademark around your name because everybody associates that name with that individual. For the 99.9% of the rest of us, nobody knows who Devin Miller is or who Miller is, and there's a whole lot of Millers out there. It's certainly a common last name. And so I can't stop other people from using their last name with their company any more than they can stop me using my last name for my company. So generally... Names, last names, such as Miller IP law, are going to be hard. The last one I'll tell you that's hard, and then we'll switch is to what you can trademark, is if it's something that's really descriptive. So my, I've got two problems with the name of my law firm. One, it has my last name in it, and then it has the word IP law in it, which is really just describes what we do. We do IP law. We do intellectual property law. And so the problem is, is if you do something that's really just descriptive, and I use the example, let's say you wanted to go out and sell the fruit apple. You wanted to go out and start your own company and you sold the world's best apples. And you're going to say, I want to make name my company Apple. 
You can't do that because everybody refers to the fruit apple as apple, and you can't stop everybody from using the term apple for to describe the fruit, right? Now, you can use Apple as an electronics company because nobody thinks to call it, you know, electronics Apple. Nobody, everybody doesn't describe a smartphone as an Apple type of a thing. And so you can do that. So if it's one, if it's the last name, it's going to be hard or any, or your name period, unless you add something to it. But just as a name, those are going to be hard. Two, if it's merely descriptive, if you're trying to trademark Apple when you're trying to sell fruit, that's going to be hard. And three, Clothing is going to be hard unless it's a specific insignia or a logo or something that does identify your sort or brand of goods or services. So not to belabor the point, but I, I'm curious. So you can't trademark the phrase Miller IP law for reasons that you just described. But mm -hmm. I'm looking at, again at the, the plaque in, in your background and it says Miller IP law and it has a specific picture with it. And the the picture is is oriented for those who are listening and, and aren't watching this. The picture is oriented in a way that's that's relative to the name of the company. And then there are a few dots below it. So mm -hmm. is that full image that picture like independent of the phrase miller ip law can you protect with the trademark that image so that nobody else could take that exact image and use that to represent their own stuff you know what you're talking about absolutely yeah so yes the short answer is yes so words are going to be so there are two different types of trademarks there's what's called a word mark and a design mark what I just went through, it was a lot of word marks, meaning if it's just the phrase, regardless of the font and the color, if you're just wanting to protect a word, then you're going to say that's one type. And that one, when I talk about you can't do your last name or you can't do something merely descriptive, that's a lot of word marks. Now you talk about our logo and I'll give the, the thing, the slanted thing is a chalkboard that says innovation and then the chalkboard is uh, slanted coming up from Miller IP law, kind of is that all good ideas start on the chalkboard, right? So that's kind of innovation starts on the chalkboard. So hence the background of the logo, but that one, it is, that one would be more of a design mark, right? So that one's going to be, it's not just the name of the word, but to your point, it has the chalkboard that's slanted. It has how we design the chalkboard. It has the dots underneath and there's a lot more design as aspects to it. It's a lot more, fanciful and it has aesthetic nature to it when you add those into it that's a design mark and then you can start protecting but what i'm protecting is less on miller ip law the word but more of the design as a whole and so then what am i protecting well i'm not somebody else could go do a different design for miller ip law they could do it at, you know completely different logo and they're probably okay but if they're to take that similar that same or very similar design then it's going to be i can trademark that and other people can't use it the standards for figuring out can, you know, how close can I get to a trademark or, you know, somebody else's trademark or not is really what they use is what's called confusingly similar. Confusingly similar basically means if I were to go out and I see two products and they have similar things and I couldn't tell who was selling what. So I couldn't tell if Nike was selling this or Mikey was selling this and it looked very similar. Then it's going to be, I don't know who's selling this. I don't know it's this brand selling it or this brand. It's too confusingly similar. Customers can't differentiate it and you start to infringe people's trademarks. On the other hand, if it's different, then you can, yeah, if it's different design, people aren't going to be confused. They know, hey, this one's product sold by this company, this product sold by this company, then absolutely you can go, you can still get Miller IP law. You just can't copy the design. Love it. And so I think this is so great and so very relevant. If I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like so many components of 
trademarking really have to do with the overall elements of your brand, right? Which again, I think is very relevant. There are so many people who are placing so much time, energy, resources, and such an emphasis on branding, not only their their companies, but themselves. So let's talk about what is this process for getting these elements of your brand, for getting all of these things trademarked? And would you say, is this process easier or more difficult compared to patents? Yeah, trademarks are less expensive and easier than patents. So not necessarily more valuable. It depends on the company, but certainly from the process side are easier. So starting out with the process. So trademark, general cost. If you do a DIY type of a thing, you're probably a couple hundred dollars to file a trademark. If you were to go to us, we do it for $750 as a flat fee. If you were to go to some of the big firms, like, like I used to work with, you're upwards of 1500 to 2000 So that kind of sets you the price range of where you're looking at. As far as the process, so what you're going to do, uh, the, you would look at two primary things as far as what you're going to do is uh, to prepare your trademark application. One is what's, you know, you're going to say whether or not I'm a word mark or design mark, right? You got to decide. You can protect both. As an example, Starbucks has a word mark on the word Starbucks. They also have a design mark on the uh, mermaid that goes on the cup and everywhere else. They have it on both. Nike has it on the word Nike. They also have a design mark on the, the Nike swoosh. So you can protect both, but figure out where your brand is. And, and that's always one, and I'll get to the rest of it, but that's always one question that people ask is, well, do I do a design mark? Do I do a word mark? Do I do both? And you just say, well, certainly if you have the money and budgets, I do, or do, I do both. But really, if you're only able to, if you have the budgets, or you only have a limited time and budget to do it, Figure out where your brand is. Meaning, are people going to look at the word that you're going to do and that's where they're going to associate with your brand? Are they going to look at the logo and the design and the aesthetic nature? Is it the Nike swoosh or is it the word Nike? Or is it which one is it that you're really going to build your brand around? And that's what you got to decide. So decide which type of trademark application you want or both. And then the second thing that you have to do as you're going through the process is define your goods or services. So Trademarks work that you have, you can, you, when you file your trademark application, you have to say what type of goods or services you're going to use it for. So theoretically, Nike has the trademark for the sports apparel, shoes, apparel, workout gear. They don't have a trademark for Nike to use it for automobiles. So theoretically, you could go start Nike Automotive. And you're not going to infringe on their trademarks. Now, I wouldn't recommend it because Nike's a huge brand and they'll probably come after you anyway. But theoretically, you could go start Nike Automotive because nobody, it's different types of goods or services. So figure out what type of mark you're going to want, design mark, word mark, what you want to protect, and the types of goods or services you're going to use it with. With those two things in hand, then you would prepare a trademark application. General turnaround time, ours is about two to three weeks to prepare one. That can range on, or usually somewhere with most law firms of two to four weeks, somewhere in that to prepare and file one. You prepare and file it. Once you do it, then you get put in a similar queue, like the patents for examination. You are a little, you don't have to wait quite as long. It's usually used to be about six months is what I would say. They've gotten a little bit quicker. The government did something right. So good job for them. They've got a little bit quicker to now it's usually somewhere more three to six months. So they've got a little bit quicker they will, that you'll get put in that queue for examination. They'll look at it and they'll look at it really for that confusingly similar standard. Are there any other trademarks out there that are, that if we allow your trademark is going to cause confusion? Our customers, if they see both brands, is it going to cause that confusion? And they'll say, when they do that examination, they'll say, nope, looks like there shouldn't be any confusion and we think you're fine. You can go ahead and get the register your trademark and it goes through the process. Or they'll come back and say, 
no, we think that there are these other brands out there that are going to be confusingly similar and people are, aren't going to be able to distinguish and they'll give you a rejection. Kind of similar to patents, you have an opportunity to respond back. You can say, no, we're, you know, different spelling. We're, our design is different. We have different goods or services. Customers are different, you know, different places we sell it. Make all those different arguments depending on the circumstance and you can do that. And then you'll go back and forth and you'll either convince them, yes, you're different or no, they still believe you're confusingly similar and you'll have to rebrand. The one thing I would, you didn't ask the question, but I'll give you the answer anyway, is thing is to do on trademarks is to do it earlier. The worst situation to get in is you wait for years down, the, building a brand for years, and then only, and then say, okay, we built a brand around this. Everybody's starting to know us. We should probably trademark it. You go out, go to get a trademark and you find out somebody else has already trademarked it. It's already out there. And now you're saying, what, what do we do? We, we built a brand around it. How do we do, what, how do we proceed? And now you're either having to go to the people that own it get a license, go try and buy it. You're having to rebrand your company and change the name or change the logo, which can be a lot of time, money, and effort, especially if you built a brand and people are starting to follow it. And so usually on trademarks, you're better earlier than later to be able to go and see, do we, or get a trademark, go through that process. So if you have to rebrand, if you can't do the trademark, you can do that when you haven't spent years building it and a lot of time, money, and effort. That, that's great. I was actually, it's so funny because that was going to be my next question, which was the timing and first use. And so I, let me, let me see if I have this right. Let's say there's a business, let's say I want to start a restaurant and there's a mm. restaurant in my town and it has the name Scooby-Doo or, or no, I guess that could be already trademarked. Uh, Scooby-Doo-Doo-Doo-Doo, whatever it is. Um, and it's a really oh, I, well, I, I already want to go to the restaurant. That's exactly. Dumb. It's a great restaurant. Everybody knows Scooby-Doo-Doo-Doo. It's got a brand. Uh, it has a design that that everybody knows and it's a popular restaurant and i find out i do a trademark search and i realize scooby dooby doop was never trademarked their their logo was never trademarked mm. and there's a shop that opens up or a space that opens up right next to them in a retail strip center can i go in and open a restaurant called scooby dooby doop and trademark the name and trademark a logo that looks exactly like theirs and then they're just screwed because i even though they've been using it for 50 years i went in and i actually uh, tried to protect the mark before they did who's who's protected there First of all, I love the name, and I, I, as long as you sell any sort of good food, I'm, I'm your first customer. <laughs> Let me know when you actually open up the restaurant. <laughs> Answering the question. So we're, you're giving this scenario. Let me maybe relay back to you. Let's. You're saying that the person next door never trademarked it, never did anything with it. They just opened And that's a lot of times what happens. I'm, you start out sometimes as, hey, we just want to be a local brand, or we're a mom-and-pop shop. You know, We're just going to serve the local community. We really have no aspirations to become a big brand. Sometimes it stays that way. Sometimes you say, oh, look, we, everybody loves us. Now we, we thought we were going to stay mom and pop, but we'd like to franchise. But let's say you stick with that mom and pop shop and they never trademark it. And then you come up and you say, I want to build a thousand re restaurants across all the U.S. and I want to trademark it. Where that falls in is kind of in the middle, in the sense of the, the people that are using it first get to keep using the trademark for their geographic location. So let's say that the one that you're building uh, building next door has been there for 20 years and they're in Los Angeles, California, as just an example. Then they can continue to use that trademark in Los Angeles, California. They have some inherent rights that are called common law rights or state law rights that they get to keep using it for that geographic location. 
However, they're not once, let's say now you went and tra- filed a trademark on yours. You say, I want to go nationwide. I want to be the biggest thing ever. I want to be the next Domino's or Pizza Hut or whatever. And you, so then you trademark it. You get a trademark for everything outside of their geographic location, meaning you can't go into Los Angeles. They already have the common law rights there, but they are then stuck. They can't grow outside of that area that they're currently in and vice versa. You can't go into that area they're in but you own it across the rest of the 50 states and they can't go get it in the rest of the 50 states. There's a little bit of caveats and a little bit more detail, but that's a fairly general answer as to how it works. If you're a mom and pop shop, you can keep going where you're at. If you're the first one to use it, vice versa, you can, somebody else can go trademark and get everywhere else. That's awesome. Okay. And, and I think that answers a lot of questions and it's basically a good reminder for everybody out there that don't wait too long. If you have a brand, uh, whether it's a physical brand or, or any other type of brand, don't wait too long because it, it doesn't cost that much money to protect it. And uh, there's more downside to waiting than there is upside. So, okay. I, I want, we're heading into about 50 minutes here. I want to touch on copyrights before mm-hmm. we end. And I, I know that copyrights are probably less applicable to a lot of, uh, a, a lot of business owners out there. Maybe I'm wrong, but could you take us through a little bit about as business owners, when we might care about a copyright and what types of things are versus aren't copyrightable? Yep, absolutely. And I'm going to flip your question and answer what's copyrightable and then why you might care. So Copyrights are for creative. So if you're to think of books, you're to think of photos. If you're to think of movies, you're to think of you know podcasts, you're to think of all of those things. Those are all creative. So those are the things that you can copyright. Now, copyrights are a bit different in the sense that you have some inherent rights when you create the copyright, meaning you don't have to go at the time you create it, time you make your painting, time you do your sculpture, the time you write your book, you have inherent rights that are, are copyrighted. The differences between an, a, a copyright and a registered copyright is now you go register it, then you put it on file with the, co- or the it's really the Library of Congress is where it goes. And it goes on file, it shows the de- time and date that you created it, and it also allows you to more often go after damages for people that infringe your copyright. So that's generally when you can, or what you do to copyright it. It's pretty simple, 350 to, or it's flat fee, and that's pretty standard. That's what our fee is. And it takes about a week to two weeks to do a copyright registration. So they're fairly cheap and simple, straightforward. Now, to your question, when should you copyright is a different question in the sense that, you know, there's everybody has a photographs on their website. And, you know, whether you take in yourself or, you know, you do that, you have text that you put on your website or, you know, you write other material, you do it. So everybody creates a whole bunch of copyrights doesn't mean you need to copyright it all because that would get exorbitantly expensive and it doesn't have a lot of return. Really what you want to copyright is if you're in those industries. So if you are selling a book and that's where you're, where you're making your money from, or if you're a photographer and you have really famous pictures or you're a, you know, you make a movie and everybody's going to go see your movie. Those are valuable, right? So then you want to copyright that because then it does have that value. On the other hand, you're saying, yeah, we got a picture on our website and it's different than everybody else, but it's not really that valuable or everybody could come up with their own picture or find something similar. So it's really not a lot of, it's valuable in the sense I like it for my website or, you know, I'm just using that as an example, but it's not really valuable in the sense that everybody's going to demand that they want to use that specific picture. Then you probably don't need to worry about it. So I usually kind of gauge it as, are you building a creative something that you want to sell to a lot of people that people are going to want to buy from you. They're going to want a license from you, otherwise use, then you're going to want to get a copyright for the other people that are just saying, Hey, yes, we have photos or we do videos or we do recordings, but that's not really, it may be that, that 
then you don't need to get a copyright. And that kind of almost goes in between brand versus copyright. And so take a podcast, for example. Your podcast is awesome. Everybody loves it. Everybody wants to listen to it. And it's going to be number one. Of, it's going to beat out all the other podcasts that are out there someday, right? That's always the goal. And so you take that. Well, is it really any one given episode that you've recorded that's the value of your of your podcast? Or is it the brand of your podcast? I Meaning, is it really everybody is listening more to, hey, this is the name of the podcast. This is a brand and this is what I follow. And that's where the value is. Or is it, hey, we've got this one episode that got 10 million views on YouTube and it's just blowing up. Then you're going to say, if it's that 10 million views, you may want to copyright it. If it's really more, hey, it's really the brand and you know that's where the value is and we got the repeat customers coming because we offer great content, then it's more of the trademark. So that's kind of when you start to delineate, do I do a copyright? Do I do a trademark? Do I do a patent? Is based on where your value is. Does that make sense? That, that does make sense. And, and just a real quick question, because I've always told, I've written a, a few books and I've always been told if I want to protect through copyright my book. One, I can register the copyright, and I do. But everybody always tells me, take a copy of your manuscript, stick it in an envelope, and mail it to myself. Is, uh, is there, I, I, is, is, is there is any... The no, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> That's a short answer. And you have that same myth as far as patents, too. They're like, well, if you just write down your idea and then you put it in an envelope and do it certified mail and they'll stamp the date on it, you got all the same legal rights and it's a poor man's thing. It's a, it's a myth. So I would not recommend that to you or to anybody because it's a terrible idea and you don't have any protection. I guess it's better than absolutely nothing. So if you're going to do nothing, I guess you could do that. But you have very, virtually zero protection. It really doesn't do anything. So it is the only thing that where the myth began, or at least this is my theory is where the myth began, is patent system up in 2013 changed from what you, and I, it'll circle back to copyright, but changed from a first to invent to a first to file system. So before 2013, whoever invented the idea first, as long as you could show the when you invented it, when you came up with it, then you could actually go and predate people. Even if they filed a patent first, you could, if you could show you invented it first, you could go get, still get the patent on it. They, and U.S. was alone in that system. 95% of the rest of the world was a first-to-file system, meaning whoever files on the invention first gets the invention first. So they changed in 2013 to be like the rest of the world, and you have to be the first to file. But where the myth came was people were saying, well, the way that you prove that you were the first to invent it was that you'll put it in an envelope, you'll mail it to yourself, you'll never open it, and they'll have that timestamp on it, and you can show that you're the first one didn't work that great, but that's kind of where the myth came up with. And so with that, it's kind of perpetuated to now everybody just thinks if they mail something to themselves and they have that data or stamp on it, then they'll be okay. Don't do it. It doesn't give you any protection. If it makes you feel better, I guess you could do it, but you don't really have any legal protection. That's awesome. Okay. This has been absolutely amazing discussion of patents, trademarks, copyrights. I thought I knew a lot going into this, but I have learned so much in this last hour. So Thank you for that, Devin. But I think we're getting to the part of the show that we call the four more. And mm. that is where we ask you the same four questions that we ask all of our guests. And then the more part of the four more is where we'd love for you to tell our listeners where they can connect with you, find out more about you and your firm. You ready for this? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to take the first question. Uh, what was your very first or your very worst job? And what did you take from it that you're still using today? I'll go with very first because I don't know. I don't know if I ever have a job that I absolutely hated. There are ones I like better. First job I really ever had was it was for a 
kind of a, it was a laser company and what they would, it was a laser engraving and, and products company. And you basically, you put in a part, you push a button, you'd engrave it, you take it out, you put in the next part, you push a button, you take it out. It was an easy job. It was the first job I did. It wasn't all that gratifying. I didn't do a whole lot, but it was somebody had to do it. So that was, I was in high school and that was my first job, putting in the part, pushing the button, taking it out, putting in the next part, pushing the button, taking it out. And I got, I got paid decent, so I can't complain. So. That is so much fun. Okay. For our second question, I'm going to change it up just a little bit. I think there are a lot of things, unfortunately, we didn't even have a chance to touch on. I know, Devin, you've talked about you have been part of many startups, many hugely successful startups. You are absolutely an entrepreneur at heart. It is absolutely in just the core of your being. You run four businesses. You have got you have four kids under the age of age of 10. You coach Little League. You do all these things at the same time. So my question right now is, what type of advice, just one piece of advice, do you have for other small business owners who are trying to just do it all, to serve your family, to serve your business, and just do all of those things to be the best person you can be? Yeah. So my advice, there's always fires are going to need to be put out, meaning, you know, I've done, as you mentioned, several startups. I work with a ton of startups. And inevitably, the problem you get with family, with your time for yourself, if you're a religious person with religion, is that business always has fires to put out. There's never an, an end of the fires or things you have to get done. And it always feels like, you know, those are the ones that are the most urgent. And, and they are in the sense that they are the easiest ones. I can get this done today. I just need to get this taken care of real quick. But there's always more fires to put out. And if you're always putting that as your top priority, you don't have the time for the family. You don't have the time for yourself. You don't have the time to make sure that you're there. Is, you know, you mentioned Little League, and I love to coach that. You don't have the time for your spouse, and you never go out on a date and everything else. And you sacrifice everything at the sole expense of startup, then you don't do it. So my general advice is you have to prioritize how many fires you're going to put out or how much you're going to do in the business. And then you're going to have to at one point and as you or with your work day to say, I'm going to have to do this tomorrow. I need to step back and do that. And that was a lesson that took me a while to learn in the sense that start of your career, when you start to get startups going, you just want to be successful and you put in all the time and effort and to say, I just got to hustle and you do have to hustle. Don't get me wrong. It takes a lot of time and effort. But you also have to say, I have to find a balance. I have to say, I can't devote everything in my life to that one thing at this whole exclusion of my family, my life, my religion, or whatever else there is out there. And so my general or general advice is there's always fires to put out. Put out the mountain that you can today. There'll be more fires to put out tomorrow and make sure you get that balance. I love that. That is a fantastic piece of advice. Question number three, and I'll leave this open-ended recommend a book to us. And it can be in an area that you specialize in, or it could just be a business book that you love, or, or just what, what's your, what's, what's a book you would recommend to, to our listeners? So I'll give you two books and I know you only asked for what, but you get a bonus. That's great. Great. So two books I, I love. So I, backing up, I love to read books. I never have a ton, as much time as I'd have, or wish I had to read them, but I do enjoy them. I, side note, everybody, if, when people ask, what is my hobby? I always tell them my hobby is startups because I just enjoy it and love it. So I always send you when I read books, I love to read business books, startup related books. I don't read a lot of fanciful books. I'm not a huge Harry Potter book. I don't even know what the current fantasy book is. But any of those, I don't read a lot. So the two books I would recommend 
or the ones I enjoy. One is by Dave Ramsey and it's called Entree Leadership. And it kind of is the mix of entrepreneurship and leadership and how you combine those together and really how you need both somebody that's an entrepreneur and a leader to drive a company and to grow it. So I love that book. It's a great book. The second one that I really enjoyed is it's called That Will Never Work. And it's a, it's by Mark Randolph, or at least it's about Mark Randolph. And if you don't know who Mark Randolph is, it's a person that originally founded Netflix. He was the one that came up there. He was the original CEO, later moved over to Reed Hastings, which is now where, who most people would associate with Netflix. But originally, Mark Randolph was, he, he was making an exit from a previous company and he had the opportunity to drive back and forth with Reed Hastings. They had to go over the mountain. They carpooled together. And so he'd always pitch ideas off of them and say, hey, let's do, and I think one of them was, let's do a, uh, a subscription service for shampoo that we mail people or bath services. And they say, that, that would never work. And they'd go on and on. And one day he came up with the idea for Netflix. Well, let's, let's, and at that day it was, you know, DVDs in the mail. I know everybody thinks streaming service. Netflix started with mailing DVDs in the mail that you could get it. And it was, hey, you know, why don't we take a company DVDs in the mail and mail them out to people and then, you know, they can have it and they don't have to go in and rent them and that. And Steve Hastings was always was saying, well, that will never work. And they said, Mark said, no, that will work. And they eventually tested it out, figured it out, got it going. And now it's Netflix as everybody knows today. But it was really with the idea that, that will, originally he was told that will never work. And then how we actually got it to work, how we built the company, how we grew it, the ups and downs they went through. So I just love that book. It's a really interesting book how Netflix got their start. That is so great. And right, isn't uh, that will never work just the most motivating sentence that we entrepreneurs can ever hear? We're like, oh yeah, let's go. We're going to just show you. I will do it out of spite if for no other reason. It's so true. Okay, Devin, our last question for the four more is one of my favorites. So tell us about an experience or an item or just something in your personal life or your professional life or whatever that you have splurged on along the way that was entirely and totally worth it. I'll give you the thing I can think of most recently that I splurged on. So backing up, when I was a kid, 15 years old, me and my dad restored a, a 67 Camaro. So I, I grew up and I loved cars, gave me an appreciation for old vintage cars. And I love that. So that was back in the back in the day. That's when I drove through high school. Originally, it sounds like a cool car. It was a cool car. It needed a lot of body work, so it didn't look that beautiful, but I loved it. And, and now I still own it, still in my garage today, and I still it's, it's still a cherished possession. Wow. With that, I wanted to have something that I could do similar with the family, that we could have something that was fun, that was a memorable vehicle. We could go out outings and just do something that was not necessary, but would be memorable and fun. So we went out and we got an old VW bus. It's a 72 VW bus. We uh, fixed it up, had somebody else help us because I, I couldn't do it all, but we fixed it up and now it's a it's complete splurge, just fun vehicle we can take on vacation, take on family drives. With, if we want to go on a hike, we'll all jump in the old VW bus, drive to where we're hiking and go. So that's been my recent splurge is just to have that bus that we fixed up and it's a fun family vehicle. That is so cool. What color is your VW party bus? So it is pearl white on the top and uh, kind of a light blue on the bottom. That is so cool. What a fun, fun all the way around, everything around that. I love it. That's awesome. Okay, so that was the four. Let's do the more part of the four more. And that's where you tell our listeners where they can find out more about Devin Miller, where they can find out more about Miller IP Law and anything else you would like our listeners to know. Absolutely. So three, I'll give you three ways that are kind of easiest to connect up with Miller IP Law and or myself. 
So the first way is generally just our website. If you go to lawwithmiller.com, you can find out more about our costs, our turnaround times, everything, what, it, what the structure is. has a ton of information if you want to just learn about it, intellectual property yourself. Go to lawwithmiller.com or Miller IPL. They both go to the same spot and um, find out more about the firm. If you want to, one of the other things we do is we do free strategy sessions or free strategy meetings where we sit down. You know, the, the biggest fear for startups and small businesses is they always want to go ask attorneys that. They know that they, as soon as they go in the door, they're going to hear the cha-ching, cha-ching of the cash register sound as the, as the bill goes up and they have to pay for attorney's time. I wanted to remove that barrier so at least, you know, you can get advice, you can get a strategy, make sure to know how to protect and grow your business. So we do free strategy meetings. And easy way to go there is just freestrategymeeting.com. You can go on there, grab a day and time that you can sit down with us, either via Zoom or come into our office. Now with COVID, it's usually via Zoom. But you can um, certainly come in, talk with us. We'll just sit down with you free of charge, talk about what you're doing with your business, what may make sense, or give you advice. I'll say, hey, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't do this right now. But that's one way. So freestrategymeeting.com is the second one. Last one is if they just want to reach out to me personally, talk more about what I'm doing, find out about the VW bus or the 67 Camaro, any of the above or anything else, they can just go to meetdevin.com. So that's just meet, M-E-T, or M-E-E-T, and then devin, D-E-V-I-N.com. So meetdevin.com. Grab some time with me and I'm happy to chat. Awesome. Devin, this was tremendously beneficial and useful. I'm sure our listeners are absolutely going to love it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing all of that knowledge. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Awesome. It was a blast to be on. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Devin. See you soon. Bye. Thank you. Seriously, that was such a fascinating discussion, wasn't it? Right? Who would think that something like intellectual property IP could actually be made fun and engaging and informative in a dynamic kind of exciting way. I learned so many things and I thought it was especially interesting when Devin was talking about how different things like scents, like we talked about in the beginning or different colors or different sounds, all of these different components of brands are able to be trademarked. I thought that was really fascinating. And I love that Devin broke down the process into so many actionable items and really kind of took the fear and daunting nature out of the whole system. Well, I think you said it all. Um, I'm just, I'm just, ex- I'm just excited that I have my first customer for uh, Shooby Dooby Doops. Oh my gosh, you are too much, too much. I'm opening a restaurant. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this week was informative and enjoyable for you. And I hope everybody has an amazing rest of their week. Thank you for tuning in. And we look forward to being back next week. So thanks, everybody. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Scoobity doobity doobity doo. Coming soon to a neighborhood near you today. Love you, baby. (laughs) Listeners, thank you so much for tolerating our ridiculous inside jokes and sense of humor. We appreciate you tremendously, and we really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. 